This podcast is brought to you by Enrollment Resources, Innovations in Enrollment Management. Learn more at enrollmentresources.com. Folks, if any of you want to weigh in or comment or question, all you have to do is press star six. But also, we also uh, can, can ask, you can ask any questions you want if you don't want to too shy to use your voice. Uh, in the upper right corner of your GoToMeeting, there's a little box where you can ask questions, and we'll, ask them, we'll answer them probably towards the end. Um, so you can type anytime you want, and we'll just get them as we go along. Okay, then. So we've uh, gone and created a little um, chart a pretty little chart that will, uh, basically outlines uh, what the admissions differences are between uh, traditional and proprietary schools. Is that correct? Absolutely. And Shane, you had an interesting point that really, the, in broad terms, the admission systems um, within the not-for-profit and the for-profit schools, really, um, you kind of tied it into a moral question, didn't you? Kind of, yeah. I kind of view them as uh, as e- either uh, service orientation or leadership orientation. Meaning <laughs> that um, the traditional colleges tend to, you know, measure success by their service level, and and typical of larger companies. Whereas proprietary schools tend to offer more um, leadership. They are active with their prospects, helping them figure out what uh, they should do with their life. Okay. And. And to me, it come, does come down a bit to a moral question on whether it's whether persuasion is okay in um, helping a student figure out what they should do with their life. Interesting. So that is a, a fairly deep question. So I think what we'll do is let's explore that with going through a few of these slides, and then let's revisit this about partway through and then again at the end, because... I think that's the theme for today is, um, uh, is it morally acceptable to use or encourage to use persuasion to help a, a, a prospective student make a, a life, big life decision such as education? Okay, Martin, well, let's roll. So the first one is the length of recruiting cycle. Um, I think this is one pretty much everyone on the phone will acknowledge regardless of what type of school which they, at which they work. Um, you know, traditional schools start reaching out to high school sophomores when, you know, high school kids, when they first they come on the radar, when they first register for some kind of standardized test, and they will, will reach out to them for years, whereas the proprietary schools don't usually get that luxury. It's much, a much more compressed cycle. Shane, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think there's two two reasons for this. One, the proprietary schools tend to um, be seeking out people that are closer to a decision making, and because they have a an active admissions process where they're really trying to engage people one on one, they're able to help somebody who's kind of maybe at a, either a moment of crisis or a, or at a at a time in their life where they're ready to make a change. And uh, the traditional schools, they just don't have the systems in place to actively help people. They have brochures and websites and procedures and whatnot to follow through, so they have to try to kind of get them early uh, in order to make the enrollment. You could almost argue that in many cases with traditional schools, the length of the recruiting cycle is zero because they don't do it. Like there's, there's active recruiting for academic stars and athletic stars and people at the cream, 
Uh, but the people who round out the numbers that go to traditional schools basically twist in the wind. Yeah, you make that yeah. argument. And the proprietary right. schools are often going after those high school students, you know, or they or it comes up in in marketing planning. Hey, we should go after the high school kids, but they generally don't do succeed at it, and generally that market isn't a very good market for them anyway. Right, yeah. it's more of a community college if they're looking for that. If a student, a high school student, is looking for that type of uh, um, education, and oftentimes go to career colleges, right? I'm sorry, the community colleges. Well, that's right. You, you know, and often you don't know what you're going to do when you're 18. You know, well, I certainly the, didn't expect. To I was going to be a doctor, as you can see. I'm I'm a physician right now. <laughs> a doctor of spinology. Um, <laughs> I think the um, the other thing that's interesting is that um, that people, parents of kids, young people these days, have a perceived value that a university, a, a, a public university, their dream is always to sort of have their kids, for many parents, uh, to go to university. And when the kid says instead, I want to be a hairdresser or I want to be a plumber or a graphic artist or something, then um, the, the, the dream changes. But the, it requires the, the child to kind of step up and go, no, mommy, I, I don't want to be a, a physicist. I want to be a hairdresser. And, and then that things move on. Mm-hmm. So what's yeah. next? So the first point of contact um, also varies. Um, the I think we can agree that that with the proprietary schools, there's somebody, there's a very dedicated structure to make that first point of contact with the prospective student. And at traditional schools, it varies widely. Shane, uh, do you want to weigh in there? I have first-hand experience with the traditional schools with my kids and with mystery shopping and whatnot. Um, I, I would say in broad terms, the traditional schools are uh, horrendous and abysmal. But don't, Gen- don't pull any punches there, pal. Yeah, because, you know, the, the, the amount of abuse that a, a young person has to endure to, um, for the right to drop forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 with a school seems to me to be laughable. Well, if you just look at any of the traditional, if you look at the difference in the websites, there, you will not find a non-traditional school that doesn't scream how to contact them on the homepage. Phone numbers, emails, fill out forms, and the non-traditional schools, you've got to go through, click to admissions, click to contact us, and you really have to go out of your way to try to reach out to them because their preferred means is not a phone call. Well, they they want you to apply. Like the traditional schools are angling for the application. What I find interesting, the question I wonder about is why do people tolerate it? Like why is there so much more demand for traditional schools that they can sort of act like the phone company and make it very difficult to engage them and get answers uh, and still be successful? Well, I know. It's because with traditional schools, they are, um, there's huge, uh, huge, huge sums of block funding and taxpayers-supported funds. So there's really, it's a bureaucratic model instead of a business model. Therefore, uh, people are more encased in building their, uh, their, their job security than performing and being accountable for results. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the thing that 
the other, the other question I would find interesting is that the, the people that work at these schools are not bad people. Like, we're kind of characterizing this all in a very negative way. And, but I, I don't want it to come across like the, you know, the people at the front lines who work in the uh, registrars, the admissions departments at traditional universities are bad people or lazy or disrespectful or negative towards the students. So, so to me, this is a it's a structural environment that comes out of a, you know, I don't know, a academic tradition, perhaps. I'm not sure why. Well, it's a perfect segue to our next uh, point, Martin. You want to bring that up? That's the experience around the admission counselors. Um, so, Shane, why don't you stay on this line of of communication? Uh, so, Martin, you have to explain to me what long-term at one school many choose as a career means. Well, when, you know, again, this, this is not based on, um, this is based on conversation, anecdotal conversations. We haven't done massive surveys on this. Um, but from what my clients tell me at the proprietary schools is that their, their uh, admissions counselors, um, you know, are, tend to be younger. They tend to be someone who does it for a year or two. Um, and sometimes people might come back to that career, but they tend to, to move on in their careers, whereas my experience working with traditional schools in previous careers, previous jobs and positions, is that you know, somebody, once they learn the system at Ohio State to be an admissions counselor, they are an admissions counselor at Ohio State for a long time. Um, it pays better. The benefits are great. It's not, a, um, um, it's not something where there's a great incentive to leave. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think... Yeah. Sorry, Shane, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's, it's not, there's less, maybe, um, I, I want to say emphasis on performance, but with the, with the current regulations in place, uh, admissions counselors at either school or not um, measured on an enrollment performance now. So it be interesting to see how this changes. Yeah, I think what's happened is with the new DOE regs uh, for proprietary schools, that essentially they've organized incentivized compensation rules so that um, going forward admissions reps will be measured in similar performance points as say a community college or a state university and um, and and our experience with those kinds of schools are it's really um, there is no such thing as an admissions counselor uh, if you want to compare apples to apples you have generally a service desk where people uh, will receive a person via the phone and they'll be, as Shane said, very pleasant and professional and they'll say, here's where you go on the website, here's uh, where you pick up your view book and if you want to get any information, um, this is the phone number for the department. And then, and then you drill into that department and then you phone and really that's where the admissions activity happens. And it's traditionally an assistant or a secretary, and they're not judged on their numbers. What's interesting, however, is the department heads are. And we know with traditional schools um, that only a third to a half of the leads generated from a, a program come from the central Marcom department, and that the um, departments individually are required to generate, really, the rest of their students. Yet they're not organized to do so. And now with block funding cutbacks, uh, clawbacks, it's becoming dire for a lot of these guys. Yeah, I think an overarching theme of this presentation, as well as our last one, is regardless of how many charts you put together, 
what's 100% clear is that traditional and non-traditional schools are different animals entirely. The only thing they have in common is they have classrooms. And sometimes ones online don't even have a classroom, but they really are so different in how they operate, how they reach out to students, how they um, uh, find students, how they get them in their schools. Everything is different. Okay, so I want to interrupt, because along that point, everyone on this call right now is looking to get better, right? We're on this webinar because we're looking for tips and ways to get better. Um, For me, it would be helpful if we, as we went through this, sort of could say which, what is the strength in each individual model and what are the weaknesses so that we can pick and choose. Because my belief, at least, is that innovation really comes out of finding things that others do very well and then implementing that in our own institution. So the question is, do we import um, the best practice of traditional schools from a business model into proprietary schools or vice versa? Yeah, or pick and choose between yeah. both. Yeah. Well, let's go to the next, uh, the next point here and let's, uh, let's have a little vote. So, uh, Martin, why, do you, why don't you explain this point, inquiry conversion tactics? Yeah, you know, the, I think you, you touched it in a second ago um, where there is, uh, I think you used the exact phrase, which is more of a service desk where they say, here is what you should do to, to learn more about our school. But if you want, you know, questions about, hey, should I become, should I do this if this is what I'm doing in my career, should I do that? That is not something that they're truly, they're, the truth is that a school is not, most traditional schools are not staffed to take those type of conversations and mass, you know, they hope if they might be able to do it one, you know, on a smaller scale, but to have the number of counselors involved that can answer those questions are just it's just organizationally untenable. So whereas on the tradi- the non-traditional side, the proprietary side, they are very hands-on, very um, actively involved, helping you make your decision, um, regardless of whether you end up at their school. They do. They are. That's their goal. Okay. So here's the question. Is it morally uh, responsible or reprehensible to use persuasion? Because that's really what we're looking at here. One is a totally almost benign neglect scenario, and the other one where there's been accusations last year or two in particular about um, over-servicing or hardballing, manipulating. Um, Shane, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I think it's the moral obligation to persuade, and so I and I, I, I kind of characterize it a little bit differently. To me, the traditional colleges focus on communication as a tool to persuade, and they view it as, you know, a, a, a favorable presentation of their brand is going to somehow persuade someone to go there. Where proprietary schools um, tend to have more of an active persuasion by by counseling and talking with the prospect. Um, I think you should employ both, and I think if if because the decision because what we know about inquiries is about ninety percent of them don't enroll. Period. And so if we get you know ten people fill out a form somewhere, usually only one of them is going to enroll. Maybe another one or two end up going to a different school, but the majority don't enroll. And so they're choosing status quo over um, uh, improving their life through education. And so if you believe that education actually provides uh, an improvement in the quality of the life of a prospect, then it's your moral obligation to persuade. Well, allow me to, to weigh in and, and use an analogy, um, if I may. Imagine we're way off in the future, and the only way you can buy, um, uh, get water to survive 
is to buy it at water stores. Okay? So water stores. And say you own a water store. Um, and somebody comes in and they uh, only want to buy uh, one glass of water a day. Now, as the water store owner, you know that they need to have six or eight glasses of water a day to survive and replenish the cells of their body and to, to maintain a healthy life. So here's the moral obligation. Do you take um, do you just t- take on a, a benign stance and just take the money that they give you for the one glass of water and and say, you're a big boy, and if you want to shrivel up and starve off and die, give me your money along the way, and you go ahead and do your thing? Or do they say, you really need to be educated and persuaded about the need to have six to eight glasses of water, and I need to persuade you really hard to do this? Now, the question there is, what's the intention? To suck money out of the guy's pocket or to help the guy? to help him live a long and healthy life. So there's a couple layers to this. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that analogy, Martin? Gorgeous. Thank you. Shane? Very, very um, soiling green. Great. Shane, um, it's just another way to really take yeah. a spin at what you're talking about there. Yeah. Okay, hey. so so with that one, we're going to say, hey, both. Communication tactics, you know, you can improve there and a private school is more active if you believe that enrolling students is a, is, um, a good thing. You see, I, I would take a different stance and I would say it's leaning heavily to, um, in, the, in that whole lead conversion process, I think it should be heavily skewed to active career review tour education plan if you really believe that education is the way to advance somebody's quality of life, I think you you're you become very assertive with them. Okay. Okay, next. So I speed to first contact. I think that everyone, regardless of the type of program in which they work, will agree that traditional that, that traditional schools are not as quick to reach out to prospective students as the non traditional proprietary schools. Um, for we can discuss the reasons, but I think this is one of those undisputed facts. Yeah, so um, we we know that with internet leads, uh, uh, due to your your research at Leads 360, that uh, if you don't call uh, an internet lead within a couple of minutes, the conversion rates fall by about um, about two thirds, three quarters. Exactly. But uh, Shane, what are your views? Should people just be grown ups and just say, "Here's the info," and if you want to buy, buy, or should they be really nurtured and quickly responded to we're responded to people are not in a most of us are not in a position to make a, a, a for lack of a better term, better term buying decision about both things in our lives because we don't know i'm not an expert in whatever career counseling or cars or dishwashers or whatever it is i'm going to buy i need somebody to help me understand it because i'm not a product expert and that's and when when you rely on the consumer to make a decision, they make decisions based on superficial things. Price is it easy to get to? You know, it's the 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 thing in front of me right now, kind of decisions. It's it's the wrong. It's for something like education in particular. It's such a high risk um, decision to make that it's the obligation of the person to inform from the prospect. Speed to contact is how you get in front of them. That's the first thing that happens. 
And so speed to contact is critical to make that happen. It's interesting. That's an interesting uh, point. I mean, if we really, I think a lot of people in the business side of education suffer from um, myopia, and um, and they the people get into a habit of making it all about them, all about their program, all about their situation, their structure, their constraints, their IT issues, blah blah blah. And really, to to be a really effective in this area, one must really have the discipline to take a real staunch um, staunch approach around empathy. And so I think, Shane, what you're saying is that really often who we're dealing with here are young people who are nervous, vulnerable, not sure, confused. Um, they're getting snipped at from their fellow students and their parents and media. And so if there's an ethical consideration in play, if you're ethical, empathy is really what should prevail. It's my personal view. Mm-hmm. What's next, Martin? So I, I think this is another area that even traditional schools will agree that, that the proprietary schools are really led on, which is the multiple points, of multiple methods, multiple media uh, approach of reaching out to folks, not just Dear applicant, thank you for your interest in our school. It's signed the admissions director, and that's the only time they actually get care of anything. Hmm. Again, uh, benign neglect, I guess, eh? Yeah. Just an editorial perspective, I, I guess. Okay, what's yeah. next? So I think, uh, you know, and again, the, the, choose, the choice of uh, how the school decides um, who, how they, uh, the, the, uh, they, who they let in also proves that also these are very different animals. Um, the, there, is a, there are a multitude of means to let somebody in uh, to more traditional schools that they look at scores and GPAs and, and you know, essays and how well they can throw a football. And, and the career schools, they just want to make sure you can, you can go to school and you can actually meet your interest and level. Interesting. What are your thoughts on that, Shane? I kind of don't want to share. I don't want to offend people. I really? That's that's a, a recent development. I think. I, Sorry, that was a joke. Okay, this this is going to sound wackadoodle, and I'm going to apologize in advance. I, I think this is the, um, in a way, this is a, a tool a tool to keep the middle class oppressed. If you want to know my actual real belief. Because the whole traditional school model, not the whole, but many components of it are, you know, you've got to go to university and get your degree, and, you know, GPA is really important, and your SAT scores and all this stuff. When at the end of the day, you're, you're, you know, your grades at the end of the day have so little bearing on your, your ability to get a job. Most employers wouldn't even look at your grades. I know I don't. I hire lots of people, never look at grades. You know, I, I look at completion, but not grades. And so it's a whole, all of this is a tool to focus on unimportant things um, in, the, in the grand scheme of life to comply with systems to somehow get ahead. So if you comply, you're going to get ahead. If you do what your boss needs you to do, you know, you get ahead in these little incremental gains, which is not capitalism. And so, to me, the whole the traditional model is around elitism and keeping the middle class in the middle. 
What you're also suggesting, Shane, is that um, traditional schools are modeled around um, uh, rewarding people who are good at assimilating information versus thinking independently for themselves? Uh, yeah, somewhat, yeah. Oh, okay. I encourage you to get off the fence, okay? <laughs> you know, it's interesting, um, along those lines, the uh, Edupunks, that book Edupunks, which is really a, a great read, folks, um, a little statistic that shocked me was that um, nine out of ten kids in high school want to go to university and get a degree, when in fact one out of ten actually complete the task. And so what, where do the other nine out of ten go? You know, McDonald's or like what? Where do they go? Well, it's all variations and gradations of this desire to have a bachelor's degree. And, you know, there's... There is. Um, well, and why? So, why do people want a bachelor's degree? Why is that so important? Because you're supposed to. Because that's the ambition. If you get somehow, you get a bachelor's degree, you can get a good, safe employer that's going to take care of you, and you know you don't have to worry. Like that's right. sort of how many jobs play are left the logic, you, right? you don't have to worry about your job. Yeah, but we don't live in that kind of world now. That's gone. That has disappeared. Yeah, it's all around performance. Well, it is all around performance, and and you know your ability to get a good test score is not a I would argue isn't a, an adequate indicator of performance. Agreed. Yeah, I was a um, I was a marginal student, and it doesn't um, show at all. <laughs> have you seen his handwriting? <laughs> I, I have folks. I have handwriting like a. Uh, like a, a preschool child, and I get harassed about it. But, however, but but you're you're, you're very bright in other ways. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So next, um, the application of star statistics. You know, it, the traditional schools take as a point of pride that they are not going to expand. That they have a thousand spots, and if they get three thousand applications, they have a thirty percent acceptance rate. Whereas the proprietary schools say we have three thousand applications assuming they can actually go to school here and they, ha- they'll, they will actually be able to take classes, then we'll let them in. But, Martin, what about the, the traditional school that has 1,000 spots and 1,000 ha- applications? Explain that one, because that happens lots. Well, 1,000 spots, 1,000 applications, that's, that, you're talking about they're more of a, the, the uh, associate school, the two-year degrees? No, 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 four-year programs. Like, a, say, an art survey, you know, they have a 1,000... Like in the old, when when the boomers were moving through as kids and stuff, of course there was this huge bulge. But you know, a lot of these business models or bureaucratic models are built around supporting the baby boomers, that, that demographic. But there's a demographic trough now, um, and a lot of these programs are hugely struggling to to meet numbers. And one of the things that are freaking people out in the traditional side is. Yeah, I've got a thousand. I have a thousand spots. Let's say I have a hundred spots. I have a hundred apps, and I have a thirty percent conversion rate. I have thirty students. So they, there's this whole overapply phenomenon that's no longer working. Now the reason it is driven down. This this is not a, a long term stat, and the reason this is driven down is because it's due to the internet, and some really brilliant. Um, uh, developers have come up with um, uh, auto, ap- auto application software 
where you can go in and, and you can make multiple applications. My daughter being one, she's applied. She says, she said, Dad, I get abused. I get abused trying to figure things out from real human beings. So I'm using the auto applic- application software. I'm into ten schools in Manhattan, and uh, and let's see what happens. So th- they're getting kind of, young people today have a often have a cynical cynical view uh, of authority, and they're happy to battle back. That's new. That's never happened before. No, with the, uh, the, the efficiency of technology. So, Greg, I want to jump in. So what, what I hear you saying is that this low um, sort of application to start stat is a direct consequence of the, what you char- characterized as benign neglect earlier on the steps above this on our little chart here. Yeah, Shane, that's the notion I would like to present in the call. Well, I, I think that is that's fair for some that you know obviously the the lower tier schools who looked like they were being exclusive by taking fewer in are going to be in trouble when they have, as you're saying, a thousand apps for a thousand spots. I think that the more elite schools are still going to have a ton of people throwing an application their way with no chance of getting in, which will help keep the numbers up or the, I should say numbers down, but it's going to creep up. Sure. What per- percentage of schools would you characterize as elite? 80%, Martin? 80% of the schools are elite? Oh, I'd, I'd say it's the other. I'd say it's 20. Maybe So eight. 20% of the people, they don't want to worry because more people want to get in than they got spots for, and they're perceived as elite for whatever reason. They've been around a long time. They're prestigious in some way. They excel. So, so they're probably not on this call anyway. <laughs> Yeah, the the traditional schools I would I would suggest are stratified into broadly two areas. There are are research based schools such as Ohio State, and then there are teaching schools, and those are people that don't have those are the state universities, um, the junior colleges, those kinds of schools. And I would respectfully suggest that's the comparison point with proprietary schools, because proprietary schools are generally teaching schools as well. So yeah, the, the University of Phoenix football team is not. What it should be exactly, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and um, and so uh, this is really an interesting statistic. Where, well, okay, so here's the other thing that factors into this. So you're just talking about elite schools. If you you know, if you look at elite schools, primarily it's a function of positioning, which often is just who's who's been around the longest. And if you look at say the Ivy League schools. Uh, most of them have been, they've simply been around longer than anybody else. Yeah, Shane, when did Harvard start? Oh, 16-something, I always forget the date, but it was the first school in America. Right. And then, you know, Princeton, Stanford, Yale, MIT, they all were pretty close behind. These are all... No, 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 no. You guys don't know anything about American history. Stanford is a new school. Please. Okay, Stanford, but... Well, fine. Wait, when did the Mayflower land? Uh... Uh, four, uh, Sixteen something. Well, anyway, know. this is not a history lesson. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> but they've been around a long time. You can't you create a time machine and go back in time and and start up your school two hundred years ago, right? It's not possible. So often the 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 way people get to be elite isn't through being excellent so much as just perseverance. They've been around a long time, and you can't compete against that. It's impossible. Yeah, the general rule of positioning is you don't have to be incredible or exceptional. You just have to be first in and not screw up. Well, and, that's right. And you can protect your position. And if you look at this, sorry, just this is an important point. Quickly, if you look at say the Coke and Pepsi, right? 
Coke was founded in I think it was 1879, right? You know, they invented cola, so they created that market. And then Pepsi came along afterwards, and Pepsi's always been uh, number two to Coke, and probably always will be. The question I ask at workshops is, okay, when, when was Pepsi founded? And I get all sorts of funny dates, you know, 1950s, 1940s. Fact is, Pepsi was founded in 1899. They were founded 10 years after Coke. And in that 10 years, you know, in a 120-year-long industry, has made the difference between first and second place. So really what it's getting down to on the education side is that there is a proliferation of state universities, um, junior colleges, and proprietary schools, and they're all kind of scrambling to to find their niche in the market and um, and with uneven results. And part of this uh, this whole thing about making multiple applications by young people is really they're getting to a point where, at least with entry-level programs, they're starting to commoditize education. Absolutely. What's next, Martin? So it's just now more to the systems. Um, you know, speaking to um, you know the outreach methods and the speed to first contact and the um, first point of contact and the length of recruiting cycle. Now we're talking about the systems that support that, and what we're looking at are systems that are very much based on you know you know uh, long term. Long, long-term cultivation of the prospect. Um, you know, a very complex application process, so you want to have a system that will manage that for you. It's probably the greatest benefit for technology to traditional schools' uh, admissions purposes was having an application that deals with the application. Um, and on the, on the proprietary school side, um, it's less about the application and more about the contact process and the... Uh, um, keeping the person in, uh, in touch with the admissions counselor. Okay, I've got a rhetorical question for everyone listening along these lines. So I want to get a phone number, and so I phone the 411, you know, in my local phone company. I'm trying to get a phone number for business. In my part of the world, our part of the world, I now get an automated system that says, hey, please, and it's this uh, very sophisticated technology that says, Please uh, say the name of what you're, you know, I go through a couple of hoops, and it's a machine I'm talking to, but it can do voice recognition, and it can usually get me the answer I'm trying to get. So the rhetorical question is, is that an improvement over a, a regular person who used to answer the phone when I dial 411 and try to get a directory listing, or is it ultimately better service to have a real person just pick up the phone and answer my question? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. If you're the one trying to save money, probably it's better. If you're, if you're the one who's, uh, well, that's a rhetorical question, so I'm not going to provide an answer. Well, I'll, I'll answer. Um, <laughs> we know that with who's calling, they've done studies of people, who, uh, pers- and this is the context of prospective students, who meet with voicemail versus the live human being. And 61% of those who uh, meet with voicemail, drop the call. And this is in part because the people who are contacting, the first of all, people generally, just most people despise voicemail because it's, um, it's inhuman and insensitive and soul-sucking. And, um, and the, the second reason is, is that these people, 
in purchasing education, it's, it's emotionally based. It's a life-changing, path-changing effort, and and they are really um, they, they drum up the courage and the gumption to make that phone call to take the first steps in this big um, emotional journey and turning their life on upside down for a couple of years and making themselves go broke and oh my gosh layers and layers of of angst and then they get met with some idiotic voicemail like what a come down and well, of course we'll or, hang or just uh, process machines you know it's automation uh, it's, it's like imitations of humanity through technology right mm-hmm you know the portals and the you know all this stuff that's designed spun to be good for you, but isn't good for you. It's just a well. Let's a you way know to automate actually, it. Let's look at talking about automation. Let's look at that second part of that of the right column, which is the psychodemographic matching. Yeah. Um, traditional schools are not as good for if whether they believe it's better or not. They're not as good at what career schools are doing as far as matching, or I should say, smart career schools are doing as far as saying this admissions counselor has, uh, you know, did, uh, is a 10-year military veteran. Um, let's pair people in the military with this admissions counselor because when they start using terms like, I was a, um E3, the admissions counselor will say, oh, yeah, sure, I know exactly what it is, or I was stationed here, or I did a tour of duty there. Um, they'll get those concepts, and it'll be a better connection and have a better conversation. Uh, on the traditional school side, I think that the most complex distribution models of their CRMs are around, I'm interested in an engineering degree. Ah, you will be sent to the person who has deals with engineering school. But if you come in saying, I don't know if I need an engineering degree, this, most traditional schools and missions groups are not nearly as good about how to deal with a person like that, which is where most career schools excel. Mm-hmm. So really, psychodemographic uh, matching is a, is a fancy-dancy term of really having, trying to use technology to um, create a, a human connection. And so I do know that, and, and folks, this is a shameless pitch for our friends at Leeds 360. I know that at Leeds 360, you have that element uh, inside the middle of your process. I don't, uh, I, folks, I think if you want to learn more about that, you should contact Leeds 360. It's a fascinating tool. What's next, Martin? So we talked a bit about the requirements. So what are the actual systems people are using? Most traditional schools are just using the front end of their student information system, whether it's Oracle or Campus View or Datatel or whatever it might be. They think that's good enough uh, because those systems really excel from the point where you get an application and on. Um, more of the career schools are focused much more on saying, let's look at an enrollment management system. And there's a shameless plug right there for Leeds 360, um, where it's, um, you know, the student information system um, is has value, but what about those who aren't yet students? Interesting point. Shane, um, I, th- I think really Martin's more of an expert on this topic. Yeah, I, I have no insight into this stuff. No, nor Looks I. Looks good to me. Looks good to me, Martin. <laughs> 